Volume 1, Chapter 13 of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, by Anna Cora Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 13 She hath a tear for pity, and a hand as open as day for melting charity. Henry the Fourth, from the same to the same, January tenth. Faire des Heureux is one of the highest privileges of our nature, says Hannah Moore, and who could look upon Ellen's altered, animated face and not feel the full force and truth of the remark? Ellen seems to live a new life, for now she has an object for which to live. She feels that she is daily contributing to the prosperity of some of her fellow beings, and this happy thought stimulates her to exertion. There is constantly employed, and occupation, combined with use, of itself ensures mental cheerfulness. Little Netta pays her daily visit to the kitchen, and Ellen herself stores the child's capacious basket with the coal victuals which are carefully reserved for her. I have reason to believe that this poor family are almost entirely supported by the crumbs which fall from the rich man's table. Mrs. Willard, at Ellen's earnest entreaty, has quieted old Betty, who in spite of her asperity possessed a kind heart of her own and who, inspired by the example of her superiors, begins to take compassion upon the desolate-looking child. The day after our visit to Netta's mother, I found Ellen busily looking over her wardrobe and selecting out all the old dresses, flannel, etc., etc., which she could no longer wear to convert into garments for the child. When Netta came, we measured her, and Ellen, with my assistance, cut out several little slips and aprons with a complete new suit of underclothes. Ellen decided that the child should wear nothing but slips confined at the waist with a casing that could be drawn or loosened at pleasure. In this determination, she was partly influenced by her own want of skill in mantua-making and partly by my suggestion that a loose garment would promote the growth of the child, whose form is remarkably underdeveloped for her age. We passed the evening in Ellen's chamber, plying our needles with great industry. Evelyn paid us a flying visit, and sat down for a few moments with the intention of assisting our labours, but she is so restless that she cannot long apply herself to any one occupation. After asking a few questions and taking a few stitches, she ran away for her purse. On her return, she took out a gold piece and said, There, Ellen, you must take that for the poor creature. I know you would like to give it to her yourself, so there it is. Ellen's eyes glistened as she took the money, but Evelyn, before her sister could thank her, had darted out of the room. You must do no such thing, Ellen, said I. You can spend that money to much better advantage upon the child or upon her parents, and make it go much further, as we Yankees say, than could these ignorant people. 
Since Ellen had so injudiciously parted with all the money that she possessed, I had made up my mind to furnish her with a small sum for the benefit of the poor family. But as my limited means are entirely consumed by my own expenses, and in providing for the necessities of one or two dependents of long standing, whose histories you know, I was doubly gratified at Evelyn's generosity. I promised to return the next morning to assist Ellen in completing at least one suit of her little protégé's wardrobe. I have kept my word, and we spent the day very pleasantly. Evelyn took an enthusiastic but evanescent sort of interest in our employment. Finding that we would not accept of the services of her needle, which, by the by, she is not particularly skilful in using, she tied on her hat and left the house in great haste. In less than an hour she returned and threw into my lap a half a dozen pair of fine white small-sized stockings, saying, "'There are petal coverings for your little unfortunate's naked extremities, and I have ordered Middleton to send home four or five sizes of children's shoes, for I could only guess at the dimensions of her feet.' I examined the stockings and gravely rolled them up again and placed them in the astonished Evelyn's hand. She looked at me with comic dismay while I coolly requested her, if she desired to be really charitable, to return them to the store and take in exchange as many pair of coarse grey stockings, which would be of some real service. I added that at the same time she could let Middleton know that he must send double-soled boots made of the stoutest leather instead of shoes which she had ordered. Evelyn laughed and very quizzically elongated her merry face, but made no other reply. Seizing the rejected stocking, she disappeared. When we saw her again, she danced into the room, waving a string of grey stockings all unrolled over her head. As she came up to me, she dropped them at my feet and triumphantly held out her hands. The tips of her fingers were inserted into a pair of small woolen mitts. We assured her that the mitts would be a most acceptable present for the child, and Evelyn embraced us both as gratefully as though we had given her the pleasure which her spontaneous kindness had procured for herself. We had scarcely finished dinner when Netta arrived with her empty basket in hand. She looked blue and shivered with the cold. While she was warming herself in the comfortable kitchen, Ellen was trying to bribe the chambermaid to take the child into her room and prepare her by a thorough ablution to grace her new attire. The chambermaid happens to be an American girl and is consequently many degrees above her station, for you know that few American women enter into service. She at first declared that she would not touch the beggar brat with a tong, but she was finally coaxed into a more obliging mood. At Ellen's entreaty, she took the child by the tips of her fingers rather than by the hand, and, preceded by a tub of warm water, they retired to the chambermaid's room. In about three quarters of an hour, Ellen and I joined them, 
The toilet of the child was just completed. In her little dark plaid dress, her neat blue checked apron, her clean grey stockings and stout new boots, we hardly recognized the ragged little pauper who had left the kitchen so shortly before. Netta looked down at her dress, at her apron and shoes, and then up into our faces and smiled. But the smile was still that painful smile, mingled with a frown, which must have grown habitual to her. Even the saucy chambermaid seemed pleased and proud of the metamorphosis which she had effected. The child's hair, though now disentangled, hung in wet and strangling strings down her cheek, and our femme de chambre suggested to Ellen the propriety of dispensing with its presence. I drew a scissor from my bed, and Ellen herself cropped the long locks in a very skilful manner. The child's hair was then carefully combed, and a band tied around her head for the sake of neatness. We tied on the little brown silk hood in which I had just placed the finishing stitches, drew the red woolen mitts on her hands, wrapped her in a warm dark merino cloak made out of Ellen's last winter's coat, placed her well-filled basket on her arm, and away the astonished little creature trudged to gladden her mother's heart and excite the wonder and admiration of her young brothers. We all watched her from the parlor window as she left the house, and I fancied that I could hear Ellen's heart beat with every heaving of her bosom, so great was her agitation, so true her delight. The child returns daily at the appointed hour. Ellen has provided her with several suits of clothes, but so strong is the force of habit that it is almost impossible to make her comprehend the meaning of the words clean and neat. The instant she enters the house, her hands and face are washed and her apron changed, yet she never makes her appearance when there is no necessary for this precaution. Ellen devotes an hour every afternoon to giving her instruction, for she has never even learnt her alphabet. As yet, she invents a strong distaste for all literary occupation, and is dull and inattentive. But Ellen is ever mild and patient, and what may not patience and perseverance accomplish? We have paid a second visit to the child's mother, and Ellen privately carried her a paper of coca shells, which I accidentally heard that the whole family greatly relished. We also took the baby a little red flannel gown, in which its withered and half-naked little limbs were quickly enveloped. The mother, on beholding us, evinced her gratitude by tears. The father tried to speak, but emotion choked his utterance, and he sat still with his sightless eyes turned towards us, evidently listening to every word we spoke. Even the old grandmother, supporting herself with difficulty by her bony arms, begged Ellen to come nearer to her, and amidst complaints and groans, told her that it gladdened her heart to see that we were none of the preachers who were always come with empty hands. Ellen, who had remained so silent during her former visit, now conversed with perfect ease, and promised Nancy to endeavor to obtain her some washing or other work. 
She even took the baby in her arms, but quickly gave it back to her mother again, for it felt like a skeleton. And its little limbs hung as loosely in their sockets as though they were scarcely knit to the fragile body. The child is, in all probability, dying, wasting away for want of strengthening nourishment and proper care. I had heard that chicken broth was particularly beneficial to infants in that state, and casually communicated the information to Ellen. The next morning I found her in the kitchen with Miss Leslie's cookery book in one hand and a large spoon in the other. She was tasting something in a skillet over the fire. The fat cook and saucy chambermaid were both looking on, the one scolding and the other laughing, but Ellen did not heed them. "'What are you doing here?' questioned I. "'Evelyn told me I would find you in the kitchen.' "'Making chicken broth for the poor little creature,' replied Ellen gaily. "'See how nicely I have succeeded, and I find that one chicken divided in equal parts will make broth enough for three days.' Netta is to come at one o'clock every day, and I am to supply her. All the arrows that I paint on the valentines must henceforth shoot me chickens. Ellen has not yet omitted to prepare her bowl of broth for a single day, and we have heard that the infant is improving. January 10th Ellen is already engaged in the translation of her French work, she has chosen the production of an authoress who has greater merit than celebrity. Her style is graceful, spirited, and springy, if I may coin a word for the occasion. The tale is full of thrilling incidents and calculated for the improvement of youth as well as their entertainment. And Ellen has so completely become a utilitarian that this is the only kind of work in which she could have interested herself. End of chapter 13